All right, welcome to episode 12 of The Grow Podcast. My name is John King. I'm your host for the agronomy segment of our podcast. Today, we're going to switch up the format a little bit and take a really deep dive into looking at the current growing season at hand with our grow agronomist, Dan Bjorklund, uh, focusing on some current events that we're seeing out there in the field. Followed by that, we're going to look at the state of the union of the agronomy business, really looking at the dynamics that are taking place in the fertilizer market as there's been a ton of new developments over the past few months. Finally, we are going to finish up with our product of the month segment, focusing on the importance of premium fungicides to combat the diseases that we're starting to see out there and are planning for. All right, transitioning into uh, kind of our current events section of the podcast, something a little new we're doing here this month. Uh, I got Dan Bjorklund joining me, the girl agronomist here today. Dan, welcome. And, uh, you know, really what we want to cover here today is provide everybody a little snippet of where we're at in the growing season and some of your observations you're seeing out there, man. So how's everything going today and, and what's uh, what's the pulse in the countryside on the current crop? Thanks, John. Um, it's interesting. Corn has been about a week to week and a half behind. Um, and I think that, you know, that'll carry into the season. Although if we have really excellent conditions in September and October, things can catch up uh, pretty quick. But if you look at where pollination is in VT, it's, it's, it's been about a week, week and a half behind, which has been kind of interesting because rootworm beetle emergence has also been behind a couple of weeks. And I think it's because it was cooler earlier in the season. Right. But the beetles are out now, and um, in corn-on-corn uh, situations, there's been some self-feeding. Um, and almost every single plant that I have dug up and looked at the roots have had root feeding. Really? So the amount of damage and what the yield impact could be will be dependent upon the hybrid. Some of the hybrids regenerate roots really well. Some of them start with a very narrow architecture in that root system. And in those hybrids, it could be fairly significant because they have a much more difficult time recovering. But the bigger, uh, more vibrous root systems um, uh, are looking better. But looking into next year, because we look at this year to solve situations for next year, especially if we're in a situation we can't really change what's going on right now. For hybrid selection, when you're looking at corn rootworm, uh, genetics is going to be really important. And I'd say knowing how to select for the root architecture, which is something that we are going to be spending time after harvest in meetings with uh, with account leads going over that information. It'll be kind of new this year for for everyone. Well, I think it's, you know, it's funny, you know, you think back to some of the conversations we've had, you know, last week with that company coming in with some new technology, how they're looking to combat rootworm. You know, that was the first thing that we talked to them about that is really the, one of the biggest things on the farmer's mind is how do I long-term control rootworm? And, you know, today in the arsenal, there's, there's tools, but man, it's, it's the com the combating it is not working to what we'd like to see. So, well, the traits um, have worked for a long time. And most recently we've used different techniques of inserting the traits into the genetics so that we could use the full portfolio. The companies have done that. But the actual mode of actions haven't really changed. Right. We've been using that cry uh, um, a mode of action. And so I know an individual uh, by Brit who had a lot of years of continuous corn that switched. He switched everything uh, over to being some significant acres this year to try to break up that cycle. And that will help. But this is an insect um, we're going to have to look at, uh, you know, 
uh, insecticides and yep. different and different ways to put two or three levels of protection on genetics and traits alone are not going to do it, especially in corn and corn. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's going to be a multiple mode attack, right? You're going to have to have the genetic part. You're going to have the insecticide part. It's going to be multiple timings. So I think it's consistent from whether it's central Iowa into central Illinois, where our family farms, rootworms are continue to become a huge issue. And we got to find some consistent solutions for that, for sure. What about, um, are you seeing any issues on beans cupping? And I know that we talked about that a little bit, or even carryover. We've had some carryover from chemical. What's that look like coming out of some of the situations that you've really kind of taken a look at? Earlier in the season, um, uh, I saw several fields uh, that looked like they had what I would call group 27 type carryover uh, from last year's corn crop. There also was some drifting. Most of those fields that had that bleaching, is which, which is what group 27 uh, causes, most of those fields grew out of that pretty well. I, I, I haven't seen any long-lasting effect. Most recently, like the last two to three weeks, it's been looking at the cup beans mm-hmm. uh, again. And boy, John, this, I mean, you can get into the weeds with this discussion because some people talk about the loading up the atmosphere and that it, that dicamba is everywhere. Others say, no, it's, it's, it's really when, you know, get together with the neighbors and talk about what is going to be applied. I've seen what I would consider maybe both. Uh, I've seen areas where obviously there was something that moved over the blacktop or the gravel road because it was worse, you know, closest to that point of where that drift might have occurred. Um, I've also seen some that looked like it was from, you know, fence row to fence row. So in that case, uh, it might have been hit by drift from soybeans, and maybe uh, we had some some growth regulator coming out of cornfields because there's been a bigger use of dicamba in corn in the last few years because again, the group 27 resistant water hemp uh, coming in. So um, I think it could be both. What's interesting, this last two years, we get to the end of September and combining and everybody forgets about the discussion. Right. I think this year, anyone who has been blessed with the rain that we just had come through and the next two to three weeks in August, which always is what is key for uh, soybean uh, yield, we get rains and favorable weather. I think we'll probably go the same way. I I, th- I think the, the yield impact, I mean, this is... For any agronomist to say this is, you know, stretching out there, but um, it, it'll probably be limited based off of what we've seen the last two years. Right. Well, I mean, and, you know, really, when you look at the current corn crop, you know, like you said, we've got that nice rain that just kind of came through this weekend. Overall, you know, you're tra- traveling a huge swath of our territory. You know, give us some opinion on what you think the potential is out there on the corn crop that we have at hand. Um, there are areas that have potential if we continue to get the rain. And, and decent weather in August to have yields is very similar to last year. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at last year, we went and we had a very, very hot June. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had corn that was rolling pretty significantly. We got into July. We got some rains that kind of carried us into August. And we had great rains in August. And you know the rest of the story. There were excellent yields. We've got that potential um, in a large part of an area, our area. Now we have some parts of our area that have only received four to seven inches of rain since April. There will be yield reduction there. Uh, 
I mean, uh, you can see that. And something, John, that we haven't talked about as much that um, when you look at soybeans that um, I think could be a factor this year, depending again on August rains, is the impact of soybean cyst nematode. Mm -hmm. Because I've noticed, and I think a lot of people noticed, the yellowing that started in the middle of June and seemed to become more intense as we uh, moved in some of those uh, temperatures. If you go out and dig roots in those areas, you can see the cycles of the nematodes. You can see them uh, on the roots. And I think that the areas that have had minimal rain could see some challenges there because we have relied on one source of genetics for rootworm or for nematode control for 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that's the PA88188. Peking is a very good second source, but it hasn't been incorporated back in to uh, some of the genetics uh, with the new traits that we've been moving so quickly, it's very difficult. Uh, to get that in. I, I do believe that within the next couple of years, you'll see more and more opportunities there. But right now, that would be uh, that would be a concern uh, of mine for those areas that maybe miss the rains in August. No, I think that all makes a ton of sense. You know, if you if you had two things that you're going to tell, you know, anybody listening to keep an eye out, you know, going forward for the next month, stuff that they can control. Obviously, weather is something they can't. But what's two things that you think that needs to be on everybody's mind for the next I would say two to four weeks. Number one in corn, tar spot. Yep. There have been reports in 12 counties of infection and mostly in central Iowa. At one of the connector meetings uh, last week, one of the farmers came up to me and they had had tar spot diagnosed and they went in and sprayed for it. Uh, so tar spot and, and then definitely, you know, the blessing of having the rain and then having it being 70 what, five today or yep. 78 today, is that those are also perfect conditions for the development of tar spot. So if there was one or two areas uh, in a field where there was some infection, and then we continue with moderate temperatures and plenty of rainfall, last year in Illinois, yep. within two to three weeks, you had just the detection of the disease to complete basically desiccation of, of the plant in three weeks, right. uh, 50, 60, 70 bushel yield losses. So not predicting that for this year, but tar spot loves to come in late when we're not looking at it. We, we spray our corn uh, at VT for our normal fungicide program, and then we start looking at beans for soybean aphids, which would be the second thing that I, uh, that I would look at. Um, uh, aphids love cooler conditions, mm -hmm. uh, just like today. So if we, and, and we know that uh, there have been uh, reports more in the eastern part of the state where there's been more rainfall and, and not as stressed as we've seen in central and west. But soybean aphids uh, would be a consideration there, something we can do uh, on the soybean side and obviously to our spot in the corn side. No, that's awesome. I think those are definitely things that everybody needs to be keeping mindful and uh, appreciate the time here today, Dan. And uh, we're gonna kind of switch gears over to the State of the Union on the agronomy business. You bet. All right, transitioning to the State of the Union of the agronomy business here, you know, I'm going to kind of take everybody through some things that I think are really important as you're thinking about your operation, whether you're a farmer, whether you're a vendor in the market that's chemical seed, another retailer, you know, the market from the fertilizer, chemical seed standpoint, you know, when you really look at it today, 
We're not going to say it's overdone by by any means, but it maybe feels like that with the sense that we've lost about a dollar eighty seven out of uh, these corn futures and a dollar eighty two out of the bean market. But what I think it's important is to really understand. You know, I I, I can't really explain every reason why the grain uh, the grain markets are doing what they're doing, but I think it's more important really to understand what the input markets are doing right now because it's not like they're giving a bunch of reprieve. Phosphates may have come down 15, 20 bucks an acre, but corn's come down 300. So I, it, it's really something that we got to look at from the standpoint of understanding, you know, what's the long-term uh, situation with the fertilizer markets and planning, you know, as a grower, as we're looking, I mean, in central Iowa, we're looking at a great crop, you know, what we really need to be thinking about. So when I think about the input market in general, primarily as it relates to fertilizer, there's three major themes that I'm think, looking at right now. One, Global energy prices are going to drive the highs and the lows in the market. Two, what will the U.S. farmer do with fall and PK, fall P and K? And three, the U.S. dollar and is is it being a safe haven for world exporters? So I'm going to get a little bit more detail about that as we go through this. But those are the three major key keys to the market right now as we're sitting here approaching August that I really think are important. So I'm going to kind of start off with the nitrogen market in general here. Anybody that's been coming to the Innovation Connector events here in Des Moines, I've been hammering this one pretty hard in, in a lot of our conversations. But um, one thing that is something that everybody really needs to be checking their information for all the time is Western European gas situation. Nord Stream pipeline did get turned back on for about 40% capacity here last week. So there's gas flowing from Russia to Germany and other parts of Western Europe. Prior to that, and I think the prices are still pretty high. I haven't got an update here as it is Monday, but you know, you were looking at fifty-nine to sixty dollars in MPTU gas prices in Western Europe. To relate that to nitrogen manufacturing, you're looking at two thousand six hundred dollars a ton of ammonia cost of production. That's fully loaded cost. So, you know, I, I've explained it a lot. You know, especially down here in Des Moines with some of the in-person meetings. What we saw happening the last two weeks when this was created was a make versus buy scenario. So what that means is it was a lot cheaper to buy it than it was to make it. So we were shutting in global nitrogen capacity uh, in Western Europe because to produce $2,600 ammonia didn't make sense versus buying $1,200 delivered ammonia to Western Europe. Now there's only so much that they can import, right? That's an infrastructure uh, or a logistical hiccup. But you know, in that time, we probably saw 15 vessels sold out of the U.S. Gulf to go to um, Western Europe. Again, think about it. It's a make first buy scenario. It's natural gas or natural gas. I either make, I either burn natural gas here in the United States and export ammonia or export natural gas or in form of LNG to Western Europe for them to make ammonia. And that's really what we created here during that time. You know, I think it's going to continue to somewhat go through. You know, I don't see the where the Western European governments are going to have enough natural gas built up by the time that you get to winter over there to really have enough industrial heating for the country and run the industrial goods. Anybody that's been following it in the news, there's already been a lot of different places in Western Europe where they've come forward already trying to put together some pretty staunch, you know, energy conservation uh, situations where they're asking people to not heat their home higher than 60 to 65 degrees in the winter. They're asking people to make sure that they're using as little bit of light energy as possible. Of all the people in the world kind of leading the charge on green energy or alternative forms of energy from coal or natural gas, you know, they have gone back to firing up coal plants that are running energy to 
kind of buy some time until they figure out what they're going to do. So really, it, it, it is probably the number one driver in the market today. And it's the one that I think is going to continue to justify higher prices or, you know, not maybe not higher prices from where we're at today. But when I think about what what is going to create another $1,500 to $1,600 ammonia situation, it's it's exactly this. And until they get something figured out on some energy dependence, they've got long term issues that you know n- nobody's going to solve anytime soon. So that to me is one thing that when I think about it and that was kind of my reason I had my top list as, you know, of key themes of global energy prices are going to drive the highs and lows of the market. That one right there is by far the most important and something that everybody should keep an eye on. Overall, ammonia prices in the Midwest, uh, you know, we did see some some uh, drawback here for fill prices. And it, it sounds like we're going to see some prepay prices from the manufacturers here this week. You know, to where that ends up coming in at, it's again, with the situation in Western Europe, it's kind of a crapshoot. You know, you got from a supply standpoint with what we have for local supply, you could justify something sub $1,000 for really where it's at from the standpoint of global supply and what import prices are going to do here next month. It could be $1,100, $1,200, $1,300 fob the terminal type stuff. Um, we're going to see an uptick in Tampa in import values to the point where you know it's going to go up two, dollars $300. So by the time you import that product up the river, inject it into the pipe, get it to Marshalltown or Garner or somewhere else, got quite a bit of cost associated to that, especially if you have a pretty substantial price increase. So for some of the product that does come into the Midwest that is imported, it is brought in on some sort of a formula basis and the manufacturers are not going to just lose money on it or price it at a discount to whatever their cost is to associate it up here. So if that's the case, they will likely just defer to bring that product to the United States and go to Europe or go somewhere else that's a more attractive market basis those prices. So again, I think it's something to be you know mindful of. As long as Western Europe has a serious gas issue, there's going to be prices for higher um, ammonia prices and, and really nitrogen in general. Another major thing that took place last week was we saw some UAN fill prices come out throughout the Midwest in the mid to high 400s delivered, somewhere around that. CF led the charge, and obviously CF uh, Industries is the largest producer of UAN in the world. Uh, and domestically, they you know basically account for 65% of our total con- production here domestically. Also with that, the day before they came out with UAN fill prices, the Department of Commerce shot down the anti-dumping case against Russian and Trinidad uh, UAN imports, meaning that Russian and Trinidad UAN is now able to come to the U.S. duty-free. And as a reminder, from a sanction standpoint, uh, the U.S. has not sanctioned Russian UAN or Potash yet. I don't know if they will. They could. There's a lot of other sanctions that affect directly affect the export of those products, but they have not really gone to the realm of, of sanctioning um, agricultural supplies um, completely. Now, Western Europe has, but the U.S. still ha- has not. So from the standpoint of the anti-dumping case, you know, now you have the ability for Russian and Trinidad UAN to show up at the U.S. Again, you have to be able to get a lot of the UAN produced globally comes from the Baltic, which is still an option to get exported today. Um, one of the major issues with that, though, is it is loaded in a um, the Russian manufacturers primarily loaded from a EU country, meaning that they'd have to send rail cars across border to then load at load port. That is sanctioned. They cannot do that. So they have to find another load port in order to export that product out of there. Now, I do think they will find some more to do that, but it may not be at the readily available as they did in the past. The other load port is in the Black Sea. 
big issue with the Black Sea is, is it's an insurance issue. The ship owners don't want to go to the Black Sea primarily because they do not want to put their vessels at risk of being in an open wartime, war, wartime area. So to say that we're going to have a bunch of Russian UAN show up to the United States and really crater prices, probably not the case, but there's going to be more than what was probably going to be here before. Even before the duties were not finalized, I think there was still probably a plan for some of that product to come here. For those listening, you know, there's basically only three places in the entire world that use UAN. You've got France, you've got the United States, which is bigger than, I mean, it's not even close. And then you've got Argentina. So really, those are about the only three markets you have to export to. And today, you know, the French are not going to buy any Russian UAN whatsoever. They're buying actually a lot of UAN from the United States. CF's exporting that out of their Donaldsonville facility, which is basically a premium to what we're selling here domestically today. And then, um, you know, we we get about uh, the Trinidad market produces about 1.8 million tons a year. And we'll, we'll receive probably a million tons from them in the U.S. here this year. A lot of that will go to California. The rest of it will come up to the Gulf Coast. So that Trinidad UAN, uh, if the DOC did enact the anti-dumping situation, they were going to be, I can't remember what the number was, is north of 200% tariff. That was going to be a pretty significant deal on the market. Again, they'll send anywhere from a half million to 600,000 tons to uh, California a year. Uh, which really helps supply a lot of that market. So that would have been a big deal with that getting shot down and them having access to the market again. I think it's going to it's gonna take out the extreme upside in that market with the opportunity to have a little bit more, more supply. And again, UAN is primarily a United States type uh, farming practice. So we're always the first place anybody wants to go. Um, looking at the urea market, the urea market's been crazy volatile. Uh, it's been up 60 one day, down 100 the next. Two days later, up 100. I mean, it's it's really been all over the place. A lot of that has to do with just lack of liquidity in the market. A lot of global things happening. Uh, we saw India come in and tender for urea here this past week. The prices were quite a bit lower than what everybody anticipated. And as well, they didn't take as many tons from the market is what the market was really hoping. So you still have quite a bit of global supply on urea that's able to be traded right now. One thing on that is the the Chinese are still uh, very tight on what they'll allow out of their country. Uh, they have pretty strict export quotas right now on their urea. So that's you know that's going to remain to keep the market you know keep a somewhat of a floor in the market. But again, it just feels like we're kind of trending away from the extreme upside situation in the market, uh, especially on urea with a lot of the global consumers really being careful on what they're buying. So, you know, domestically urea today is is a pretty hot spread to both ammonia and UAN. I want to say wholesale, wholesale spreads on uh, urea and UAN are almost to 10 cents. That's the highest I've probably ever seen it. I would say it's probably somewhat unsustainable. So either UAN's a little overcooked or urea is a heck of a buy right now. So I think time will tell us a little bit more on that one. Again, got a long ways to go for these 23 or, you know, next year's crop before planting, fertilizing, all that stuff. So time will tell us a little bit more of the story of what we're going to see there. Potash, there's basically been no change in the market. I, I guarantee by the time that this podcast hits press time, I, I fully expect that the manufacturers in Canada will hopefully have their summer fill potash programs out. Today, they haven't come forward with anything. And uh, it, it's really I'm not sure what's going to be other than I, I do expect prices to be flat to where they're pricing today. Um, the United States market is still the cheapest market in the world for potash. 
So there's really no incentive for them to take the prices any lower today. You know, what that looks like six months from now, it's hard to tell. Again, I think the Brazilian buyers are still buying at today's prices. Again, they're well over a thousand dollars a ton delivered. You've got Southeast Asia that's close to a thousand dollars a ton delivered for uh, potash and it's standard grade potash, which is an inferior product. So, you know, when you look at those things, potash wise, out of everything feels probably the most stable. It usually is always pretty well a controllable market to some degree because there's so few people producing it. But if anything, if I have any confidence in one product that's really not going to be able to go much lower, it's it's that one. I think we've kind of hit a global floor for what that is, for especially with losing a lot of the Belarusian supply. To put it again, to put it into perspective, I know I've talked about this in previous podcasts. Russia and Belarus account for forty percent of the global supply period of potash. Basically, I want to say Belarus is eighteen percent and. Uh, basically, I think they're close to 2020. Either way, when you look at it, the issue with Belarus is their primary ports of export, again, were EU countries. And the EU has come down really hard on them on being able to cross-border with their product. The other major export port for potash out of that region is St. Petersburg, Russia. And the one of the Russian companies, UKT, owns primary rights to that terminal. So like anything... You know, they're not going to give up a bunch of extra capacity at that port for somebody else to export their product out of there. They're going to maintain that. They're going to run their plants. So, you know, when you really look at it, you've got about maybe 60 percent of the total capacity of that whole market that's going to be able to actually produce and export product to the rest of the world. So with that, you know, we've, we have to rally prices to the point that we're going to kill demand. And that's a lot of what we're seeing globally. And finally, the phosphate. Uh, market uh, prices remain pretty stable globally. Um, again, the U.S. market's carrying a huge discount to the rest of the world. One thing I would say about the phosphate market, you know, we've come off a couple hundred dollars from the from the highs we saw right when Russia invaded Ukraine. But the biggest thing with that now that when I look at it at being such a discount to the rest of the world, there's really no incentive whatsoever for a country like Jordan or Australia or Saudi Arabia to send product to the United States at two to three hundred dollar discounts to the rest of the world and there's every reason in the world for mosaic our domestic manufacturer to find more export alternatives out of the country today i just think it's something that if you're not preparing yourself with even if you don't want to buy prepay or you don't want to lock prices in today i think it's something that you need to be making sure you're having the conversation with your local retailer about what kind of demand you think you could have this fall for P and K because the whole market's going to step in in season. It feels like today to really cover a lot of that supply. And it's going to be a huge logistical challenge, especially when I see it from the standpoint, we've got a little bit later planted crop here in the state of Iowa. It's for the most part, it looks like a pretty dang good crop, knock on wood. It might be a little wetter, you know, hard to tell what it'll be for moisture because it looks like it's going to get dry here in the next two weeks. But either way, if it's a big crop and it's a later crop, it's only going to condense the amount of time that in trucks that we have on the road to really get that stuff from the river to an inland terminal or rail cars, or whatever it may be. So 
you know, I think there's a lot of people out there that, that are not interested in the price or don't want to part away with their money in order to um, spread that this fall. But I think if that's the case, be making sure that you're at least having the conversations with your local retail team about what you could put down so that they're planning logistically to get it there. Uh, one other big thing that's come out is the Chinese have really had some really strict export quotas on phosphates. When you look at it from January 1 to June 30th, they cut about 4 million metric tons of supply from the market on phosphates alone. So meaning year over year, they exported 4 million metric tons less. To put that in perspective, uh, that's about half of the phosphates from a map, to call it map standpoint. That'd be like the United States using 50% less map in one year. And they did it in six months. Their most recent export quota that they came out for the second half of the year has them exporting about 1.8 to 2 million less tons. So, I mean, when you really look at that, that's just a lot of supply that's not going to be there globally. So as much as it feels like, you know, to kind of summarize all this, as much as it feels like that the fertilizer prices are still too high and are unrealistic, I think the biggest thing that everybody has to be aware of is you can't take corn price today and just look at, you know, and say, well, the fertilizer prices have to come down because corn came down. I totally agree with you, but the problem is, is globally, we have some serious headwinds on, a, on our, our uh, front that are not allowing the prices to come down. And again, the major one is energy. You know, the Chinese are short energy, Western Europe short energy. And when you have one of the global energy leaders in the world that's at war right now, and a lot of the rest of the world has really been hard on them from a sanction standpoint, uh, whether it's their banking structures, whatever it may be, you know, that's creating some serious headwinds uh, for really export supply. You know, lastly, the, the only other watch I would say or bearish factor in the world today is the U.S. dollar. Obviously, you know, a lot of the farmers are paying close attention to the U.S. dollar today because it's uh, it's one of the reasons why the corn price has come down is because we got such a strong dollar. It's not making our exports of grain nearly as competitive. But from a fertilizer standpoint, if you're trading under Saudi Arabian currency, Australian currency, whatever it may be, the U.S. dollar today is a huge opportunity for you because you've got such a great currency exchange opportunity um, to sell product to the U.S. and take U.S. dollars. So, you know, with that, I think there will be, you know, as we continue out through the next few months, there's going to be a few extra cargoes that get pointed toward the United States just because of the safe haven of the dollar. Globally, when you look at issues in the EU from their fiscal responsibleness, Brazil's always kind of a crapshoot on money structure down there, uh, as well as a lot of other places in the world. You know, there might be a few people globally from a manufacturing side that just take the safety in the U.S. dollar for some of their production. So I think that is a trend that could be followed on urea, especially. Um, again, a lot of the Middle Eastern companies look, or countries looking at the U.S. dollar for some safety. So those are some things I think about. Again, I don't know if I'm bullish or bearish on any of the fertilizers today. Uh, one thing that is definitely, you know, it's, it's really hard to navigate these markets just because of the geopolitical issues we're seeing globally. We've got huge inflation concerns. Obviously, the Fed is really getting after that, trying to knock that down. You know, we'll know this week on what kind of rate increase they're going to come forward with. Again, that could be another somewhat macro bearish factor for both grains and for fertilizer commodities. But, you know, I think supply is still of the issue. I think we are getting in a better supply spot on supply domestically. But, you know, globally, when we look at energy alternatives, that's going to be the one that's really going to, you know, again, kind of like I said, 
Global energy prices are going to drive the highs and lows in the market. Until those unknowns are really brought forward, it's hard to tell if it's going to be the lows or the highs. Today, I think worst case scenario from where we're at right now, it's a pretty flat market, both urea, ammonia, UAN. I don't see much movement up or down. I think from our prices, they're somewhat stable just from where they're at. I think the market's priced a little bit of downside in everything as far as you know the reset prices. So I just don't see much getting better in the next six months. I think it's a six, six month to six month type scenario on all these markets just because of the just the macro environment we're in. So um, with that, you know, chemicals, just one minute on chemicals. The only thing I can say on chemicals is you're going to see six to 8% increase on about everything. I shouldn't say about everything. Glyphosates in general, I think are going to reset to a, a nice price lower. You know, I don't know where that'll be, but it's going to be sub $50 retail. Could be in the low 40s, mid 40s is where I kind of think it's going to be at. When you think about that, that's, uh, you know, anywhere I've heard highs is $90 glyphosate, 55, 60, 70, you know, so glyphosate in general is going to get back to a more reasonable spot. I think one that if I'm worried about it, my pre-chemicals that have acetochlor or metallochlor, those are the ones that I would be ready to pay a higher price on. Those products in general are very tight globally and extremely tight domestically. Uh, glufosinate is going to be another one. A lot of the glufosinate, especially from the just pure AI standpoint, is produced in China uh, with a lot of the rolling blackouts that China has been having. It's affected a lot of the new production that was coming online um, and the target dates for some of that production is not going to make it up. And after that, you know, I think the biggest thing is the branded manufacturer products, they're going to get the six to eight percent increase. They've had a huge year. They have virtually no supply left in the system. There's there's no reason for them not to take that increase. I think some of your generic products are going to be your opportunity to kind of buy that acre down. Again, glyphosates, uh, mesotriones, uh, clethodums, different stuff like that. Be make sure you're working with your local team, your local account leads, or calling into the office to talk to us about you know where we see opportunities to make cuts. Because I think that's where you're going to have to look next year on your chemical plan is you know instead of using a branded clethodum, or I'm worried about making sure I get my Bayer bucks on Lotus. You know you might be able to really cut some dollars out of the budget by finding a few other opportunities. So stay tuned on that one. We'll have some more uh, interesting information on that. Uh, and make sure you look forward to our September uh, podcast as we're going to have uh, the owner of one of the major uh, generic companies here in the United States on with us to talk a little bit more about supply. So with that, we're going to round out and kind of transition over to product of the month. Thanks, guys. All right, transitioning to product of the month, I got Dan Bjorklund here with me. We're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, really the premium fungicide market. So there's no one in particular product of the month this month, but really just looking at it from the standpoint of um, a lot of what Dan talked about earlier is, you know, one of the top things that farmers really need to have in mind at this time of the year is, you know, tar spot. Some of the things that, you know, I would say in central Iowa, we haven't been as acclimated to, but are definitely, you know, things that we need to combat. So, you know, Dan, when we're why would a farmer want to use a premium fungicide, that being something that's three modes or something brand new tech, um, instead of using something that's like a quilt Excel, maybe something that's a little bit older tech. So what what's your opinion of that? Oh, well, the yield data um, through university research has been very, very favorable for products like Triverpro uh, and Miramis Neal. You got three modes of action and the length of activity is just longer. And the thing with 
tar spot is, yes, it can come in early, and it has in some areas this year. But last year, the Eastern Corn Belt just got hit by a late uh, infection and it just caught everybody uh, off guard. And those who were just expecting to control it with one application of VT had a really rude awakening because in three weeks, their corn uh, was shut down. There's nothing that they could do about it. And you can talk, you can throw yield numbers out there, but 50 plus yeah. um, uh, yield impact. And so other products like Quilt Excel, they have activity. They're, they're, Something's better than nothing. Right. And so you, you'll get some activity. It's just length of activity. And really, John, even with products with the length of activity that they have with like the Triva Pro and, and Nervous Neal, just because we applied them already doesn't mean that we might not have to go with the second application. Yeah, I, keeping an eye on it. In Mexico, where they've had where where this um, disease uh, originated, it's been a two pass uh, program uh, to control it, and it will depend upon you know the infection level that we have, and then it'll especially depend upon weather in August because that cooler wet weather, and sometimes when we transition from the hot temperatures of July. And the weather pattern changes in August. August can be hot, but if August would go like it did last year and be a little bit cooler and we get more rainfall, it's going to be ideal conditions for the development of tar spots. So we may have to go to a second pass. Well, and, you know, speaking from turn, you know, our family, we farmed in central Illinois. We've been dealing with tar spot for two or three years now. And I mean, it. It is as prescribed. If you're not paying attention to it, it will sneak up and bite you for sure. You know, some of the products that we're kind of referencing that I would consider premium fungicide type brand would be Mirvis Neo or Trivapro from Syngenta, Valtima or RevTech from BASF, or, you know, looking at Delero Complete from Bayer. The other reason I think it's important from a grower standpoint to look at it this year, even generic the generic quilts of the world, stuff like that. This year, you're probably still running 11, 12 bucks an acre at this point of the year. You know, when you're looking at premium stuff, you're probably paying about $10 an acre more, somewhere 12, sometimes 12, sometimes 15. But, you know, when you're, we're and it's nice to see the corn market bouncing back a little bit here today. But when you're staring down the potential for $6 corn and you're talking about two, three bushel an acre increase, I think in years like this within a high yield type uh, environment, that's, and especially the last thing you want is to have something like tar spot come in and completely decimate it when you could have prevented it at these, you know, or at least maybe not fully prevented it, but really gotten yourself into a advantageous spot so well the insurance value um, is great like you said yeah. for that two to three bushels and then to protect against that big risk of the 20 30 40 or uh, you know god forbid uh, 50 but that happened to people last year and i think the biggest lesson learned for me was that don't forget about scouting your corn in august mm -hmm. um we've always made that transition to we've got to watch out for soybean uh, aphids and, and those types of things in August. But now with this disease, uh, we're going to have to be looking in a very preventative uh, type state of mind throughout the entire growing season and walking out there and, and just making sure that you don't find just a few of those areas developing because once they develop, they can go very quickly. Yeah. And one thing I would say too, for anybody listening, the product supply at the premium fungicide overall portfolio is not great. 
I mean, and not great by any means. So I think it's, again, it's really important, you know, if you if you have issues out there, you see them coming, make sure you're talking to, you know, your local supplier. Um, we've done a really good job here at Landis to get ourselves in a spot to have excess Mirvis Neo and Triver Pro here in season. If guys are out there, you know, if you're listening in market or, you know, that are close to some of our locations or even out of market and you're having trouble finding supply, give us a call at 515-800-GROW. We'll work with you to see if we can help out and get some supply. But again, these products are not wildly available this year. And I think it's something that if, if you're having trouble finding supply, again, we've got some extra and uh, we'd be more than willing to assist. So Dan, thanks for coming on here today as always. And uh, hopefully when we're coming back in August, we're talking about this awesome crop we're about ready to finish up. 250 plus. That's what, that's what we're looking for. Thanks, buddy. You bet. Thank you for joining us again on this month's Grow Podcast. A special thanks to Dan Bjorklund, our Grow Agronomist, for joining me today. If you have any further questions regarding anything we talked about today, please call us at 515-800-GROW, and the team will be sure to get you in contact with myself or Dan directly to get those questions answered. Again, thank you for your support of the Landis business, and have a great week.